0: nice, noise, noise. Uh,
1: It's gonna be weird.
0: <laughs> yes. Hi, I'm Amy. And I'm Chris. And, and we're, we're Sonosphere.
1: You're listening to WYXR
0: 91.7 on your FM dial. tuned in to Sonosphere right here on WYXR 91.7. On this episode of Sonosphere, we highlight the life and compositions of composer Margaret Bonds. So many people who made invaluable contributions to classical music have been nearly lost to history or are underappreciated in their time. Bonds is one of those characters.
1: We learned more about her when we covered one of her mentors, American composer Florence B. Price, earlier in this year. Be sure to check out that episode. Bonds, like Price, is lesser known in the field of classical music, being both female and African-American, often not covered among classical, European-based composers dominating the history of classical music.
0: Sonosphere has covered women in classical and electronic music, like Pauline Oliveros, and we hope to continue covering lesser-known great composers of our time. Join us. I'm Amy.
1: And I'm Chris. And this is Sonosphere on WYXR 91.7. Today we are covering the life and composition of pianist and composer, Margaret Bonds. Bonds was born in Chicago in 1913 to musical parents. Margaret Bonds was a musical prodigy and by age 13 she had begun to compose. At age 16 she enrolled at Northwestern University where she won awards in piano and composition. Bonds experienced success as a performer and composer in the world of classical music, but she went beyond the limitations of the genre.
0: She wrote music for Cab Calloway, the Glenn Miller Orchestra, Louis Armstrong, and Woody Herman, as well as radio and television specials. Later in life, Bonds moved to Los Angeles, where she taught at the Los Angeles Inner City Institute and at the Inner City Cultural Center, and worked for the movie studios.
1: We interviewed Anna Salinza, author and professor of music at Georgetown University. She wrote a whole host of books featuring musicians like Duke Ellington, Vivaldi, Gershwin, and Bach. Salinza also put together an archive on Margaret Bonds. The digital version is available online as part of Georgetown University Library.
0: We speak with her about the archive and more about Bonds coming up next on Sonosphere right here on WYXR.
1: Raised by sound
2: So how do we get here um she was born um in the you know the beginning of the 20th century she studied music her parents although they they got divorced when she was very young when she was about four um she stayed in you know close touch with both of them and they both kind of gave her um uh an an opening into kind of who she became so she became of course a a very um well-known musician and composer her mother was um a, a musician and was really the one that pushed her to do music and was constantly like holding these salons in their home and inviting people in and so she met um um you know a, a range of people. So that that was on that side. Her father, on the other hand, um, was very into um, civil rights at a very, very early time period, to the point that um, he really believed in equality of the races. That was something he pushed for, but even more so equality of gender. Uh, and so when she was young, he actually wrote a book on um, basically giving biographies of important African-American women. Uh, And so between the mother sort of really helping her launching her musical talents and her father saying it's the talents of African-American women that will bring our race pride, um, it set her on a really good path to be a performer and a composer. My name is Anna Chalenza. I'm a professor now at Johns Hopkins University, but I started this project when I was at Georgetown University, and it truly was being in the right place at the right time. Um, Our special collections at Georgetown University uh, had come across uh, a collection of Margaret Bonds' music. had reached out to me and said, you know, I know that you've been doing a lot with Duke Ellington and you've been doing a lot with Langston Hughes, and um, we heard about this collection and we were wondering if you think we should get it, like should we buy it? And I said, well, sure, let's let's see what it is. And it was amazing. It was, you know, manuscripts of hers and some printed music, but notebooks and tons of letters. And I thought, how could this not already be in a collection somewhere? And it ended up that our librarian really saved it. Um, It, it, some of the, a big chunk of the material, most of the notebooks that have um, works that that scholars thought were lost, um, like uh, Simon Bore the Cross, were, had been put in a box at the end of an auction and were about to be thrown out. And, um, you know, a guy who sells manuscripts went, well, I'm just going to grab this box and see what's in it. And that was the bulk of the beginning of, of this collection. And so the collection arrived and it was in no way categorized. What had happened was um, Margaret Bonds, when she died, she did not leave a will. Um, her daughter was able to go out to California and just get a bunch of boxes out of the basement of a school where Margaret Bonds had been teaching. And then when she died, the daughter died, she also didn't have a will. And so it just sort of went up for auction. And so it's amazing that it got saved. Um, And then the experience of just going through the material, I spent uh, an entire summer every day um, in the library just, Reading through the materials with librarians and trying to categorize it and you know catalog it and it was just amazing. It was like she came to life on the page. It was it was a really exciting. It was like one of my best summers ever.
0: So kind of along those lines, um, I wanted to pull out the quote that um, is in the introduction of your um, curation, which talks about yeah. Um, her being that link between African-American composers of the past and composers uh, that were coming up today. And so I, I guess my, kind of my question was around, do you think Bond saw herself as a way to carry on and recognize that historical aspect of, of black contribution to classical music, particularly, I know she got into pop later on, um, but really, making the the, the contribution of classical music known.
2: Well, I, actually, I would um, push back on that a little bit. I think she, um, I do think she saw her music as a continuum of the past to the future. Like she saw herself as a link in the chain, moving along. Um, and. The reason I said I'll push back is is the idea of the pop music. She what what was kind of amazing about her is she refused to like be put in a in a category. Uh, so she's doing you know classical work and and she's playing you know doing concerts um, you know at Town Hall in New York of classical repertoire. And at the same time, she's playing ragtime and jazz. And at the same time, she's writing um, and publishing tunes like Peachtree Street, which was written for, of all things, the premiere of um, Gone with the Wind in 1939. Um, so, And then she's writing musicals, and then she's writing sacred music. So I she was just tireless. I mean, you read her letters and, and her just daily schedule, and she just... She was a driven woman and it was anything she could do to make a connection, she'll do it. So even with her own pieces, she would keep setting them for different um, group, like different performance aspects, like an orchestra or a chorus or a soloist or all girls voices or all male voices to get it performed. Like she was, she was so upset that there were so many roadblocks um, in the American concert system. So she was just gonna write whatever she could get performed. Thank <laughs> a great set of years. I mean, by that, she, you, you can just tell from her manuscripts, you know, her letters, her diaries, uh, she listened intently all the time. And she was a little bit like a sponge in that when she was trying to capture um, a mood or a, a narrative uh, or an emotion in, in music, she would reach out to the music around her. And so, you know, a lot of times I think we put things in categories because that's how we buy music or that's how we used to buy music before streaming. Um, And so she did get categorized in that way, but I got the sense, I get the sense from her that, you know, from opera to popular song, she didn't, it was, it was very fluid from one to the other. Um, and the only difference I would say is she, she wrote some really humorous songs and some silly songs with Langston Hughes. And I think that was them just having fun. And sometimes they published them and sometimes they didn't, but they just had a good time. Um, and he would send her ridiculous lyrics and sometimes she'd just be like, excuse me, I'm not going to do that. Um, but so you could, you can see the playfulness there's, um, and there was this great, sense of like uh, one other important story that i think is important is uh so he they met in chicago and she is he's moved to new york and she's getting ready for like this her first big major public concert and she writes to him just she's so nervous she's so nervous and the day before the concert he sent her a telegram and he said I can hear you from here and you sound great. And like, that was just so amazing. You know, that connection was there.
0: While in Chicago, she regularly played piano at the Palmer House Hotel and tried her hand at songwriting. Activities such as these increased when she moved to New York in 1939. Many of her songs, like Peachtree Street, tapped into trends in popular culture. Others confronted social issues connected with civil rights. The lyrics to Three Wise Monkeys references the racist viewpoints of three Southern politicians, Theodore Bilbo, Eugene Talmadge, and John E. Rankin.
1: Bonds' lifelong friendship with poet Langston Hughes yielded numerous settings of his poetry, including some of Hughes's most iconic poems like I, Too, and The Negro Speaks of Rivers. Bonds' daughter, Jane Richardson, referred to Hughes as Uncle Langston.
2: Yeah. And it, it, that there's, you know, there's sometimes in someone's biography or in their life when they can kind of pinpoint a moment when they realized I need to do something. Um, and for her, it didn't happen until college. She went to Northwestern University, um, which was in the northern part of Chicago, which was the mostly the white part of town. Um, and uh, she, for the first time in her life, was sort of a fish out of water she had been sort of protected culturally um and so had not felt or said that she had not experienced prejudice um and then uh until she went there and i'd I'd like to read the one quote where she kind of talks about that moment she said quote i was in a prejudiced university this terribly prejudiced place i was looking in the basement of the evanston public library Where they had the poetry and I came in contact with this wonderful poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers, and I'm sure it helped my feelings of security because in that poem, he, he's talking, she's talking about Langston Hughes, tells how great the black man is. And if I had any misgivings, which I would have had to have had, here you are in a setup where the restaurants won't serve you and you're going to college and you're sacrificing, and you're trying to get through school. And I know that poem helped save me. And that's, you can actually see in her own writing, that's when she started to write music that dealt with social issues. So Margaret Bonds uh, reads Langston Hughes, discovers Langston Hughes for the first time in the library. Um, and she becomes enamored of his work, a big fan. And a few years later actually meets him in person. And I, you get the sense she sort of just geeked out, you know, it's like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm meeting you. You've you've meant so much to me. And she had at that point, um, she didn't have a lot of self-confidence. She was a very good performer, but she was getting very stressed. Um, her, her years at Northwestern, were not terribly happy. She kind of felt that, that she was being discriminated against. Um, Langston Hughes became a really close friend and Langston Hughes introduced her to her future husband. Um, he It was a good friend of his um, from Lincoln University that they had gone to school together. So from that point on, their lives become very closely intertwined. One, because just friends, um, but the second, because Langston Hughes starts sending her everything he writes, um, like anytime he publishes something, something. And she begins going through that and sometimes creating song cycles, beautiful songs from some of the poems in, in those works. And then, you know, this, this collaboration begins. And what's interesting is by the time we get to the mid-60s, the early to mid-60s, you can see that it's not um, Margaret Bonds that's sort of, Looking to Langston Hughes for guidance, you see that Margaret Bonds is taking the lead. She's like, "We're going to do this piece." You can see in their letters, she's like, "Come on, you got to get these texts going. You got to, you know." And she she revises his work, so they they became equals, I would say, as working partners in um, around 1950, and then she sort of really takes the lead um, and did you know, a lot of important works together. They did uh, um, a Shakespeare, um, they did these plays Shakespeare in the Park and she wrote the music for it and it was Shakespeare in Harlem. So, you know, again, trying to take works that meant a lot to people culturally, no matter what race, and um, kind of give a, a new view to them, a new perspective. And she tries to take, she's trying to connect to broad audiences by taking stories we know, like the Christmas story, (laughs) like the, you know, the birth of Jesus Christ and to tell it from a different point of view. So the first big famous work that she did with Langston Hughes was the Ballad of the Brown King. And it tells the story of Christmas from one of the three Kings who was from North Africa. Um, And so, That work, um, she finished it in the mid fifties. She dedicates it in 1960 when it's published to Martin Luther King. And then several years later, after King had died, she writes um, another cantata, um, Simon Bore the Cross. And that tells the Easter story about uh, a black um, figure, Simon, who carried Christ's cross for him. So, uh, and that she dedicated to Martin Luther King. So, I, I think the the tragedies that happened that she witnessed, civil rights tragedies, like that, um, she tried to deal with by telling positive stories or by, as we were talking about, reaching back in history and connecting it to events of the present by remembering that there were people of color that were part of many important stories in our lives. Composers, a lot of African American composers in the early 20th century um, looked to spirituals as um, sort of a, a, a base from which to, to take ideas and music. Um, what is different about what um, Margaret Bonds did is she she created these settings, these very very settings of African American spirituals, um, and for all different ensembles. Um, and the idea of it was these are works that not just that you, you sing in church or you sing on the concert stage, although many of them were recorded and, and, and sung in concert, but these are works that should be sung um, in a sort of elevated way alongside important songs like Lift Every Voice and Sing which became the Black National Anthem. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that there, again, the spirituals linked back to the past, but she would not have seen singing them in a folk song type style as a, kind of moving the music forward. And so I think what's um, especially important about her settings of the spirituals is that she sets them like art music um, and she uses spiritual tunes in a lot of her orchestral works um, but does that as this is sort of the roots this is sort of the dna of american music but we need to move it forward and we need to open it to all sorts of performers and all sorts of audiences so she got very excited when, kind of within a couple of years, she has Leontine Price commissioning um, uh, versions of the spirituals that she wanted to record, and Nina Simone. So you know you've got you know two very powerful women in the world of you know jazz and concert music who are looking to Margaret Bonds and saying, I I want to share what it is you've created. I want to send this out to a bigger audience. Um, And the fact that it was women made it all the more important.
1: A lot of Bonds' music was lost following her death in 1972. According to musicologist Helen Walker Hill in her book From Spirituals to Symphonies, African American Women Composers and Their Music, of the more than 200 compositions by Margaret Bonds, only 75 scores exist today. Of those 75 scores, only 47 were published during her lifetime.
0: Bonds died four years before the passage of the Copyright Act of 1976, and she didn't leave a will. Her only heir, daughter Jane Richardson, died in 2011 without any heirs and also without leaving a will. The copyright status of Bonds' work is unclear. No one knows at this point who controls the copyrights, which remain in effect for many more decades. As a result, performances and recordings of her music are complicated, One of Bond's largest and perhaps most important works, Montgomery Variations, written in 1965 during the Selma to Montgomery Freedom March and dedicated to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., has never been performed. And it may not enter the public domain until 2042 at the earliest.
1: We are lucky, however, that much of her work is available. Her spiritual, troubled water, has been recorded many times. Her Christmas cantata, The Ballad of the Brown King, which features the poetry of Langston Hughes, was performed recently at Georgetown University, where Bonds's archives are kept.
2: I mean, she she taught a huge amount of students when she moved to New York and um, and then later on in California, she she founded nonprofits or she played major roles in nonprofits that went into um, economically oppressed parts of these big cities and taught music. So, you know, there are hundreds of students she taught that didn't become famous or didn't. But that wasn't it. It was about using music as a way of gaining um, self-assurance. I think because she remembered struggling with, am I good enough? Do I belong here? Um, she wanted to make sure that her students didn't feel that. And so <clears throat> what I think is amazing <clears throat> is given the time that Ned Roram's family went, yes, we're gonna hire this African-American woman to teach you know, our white child. And so that was rare. Um, and I think she gave to him the same sense of be assured of who you are, listen to the world around you. There is no music that's better than other music and music should connect with not only who we are culturally, but who we are as people, spiritually. And as far as women goes, she got very active um, later in life. She would give talks about... Um, and and give, you know, kind of uplifting talks at at various um, business associations of how do you break in the music business as a woman? What are you going to face? What are the realities? Here's what I learned the hard way. Here here are the easiest ways to get your foot in the door. And so, you know, so it's practical too. Besides, you know, sort of, you know, philosophical and spiritual, it was also, okay, A, B, C, this is what you got to do.
1: Forty-six years after her death, her music is still relatively unknown to most audiences. She faced racism every day of her life, and she said even more challenging than her experience as a black woman in the civil rights era was the prejudices that she faced as a woman in classical music.
2: say the songs um, that are very emotional she doesn't tend to kind of go to a pop ballad for that Um, satirical songs or really hard-edged political songs there's one song called three monkeys and it's making fun of some southern politicians and it's pretty harsh and it's written in a pop style I think to make them seem all the more ridiculous um, but when she got married, she gave her husband um, several songs as, as a gift, and one of them is called Bound. And what's interesting about going through the manuscripts is the final version uses all these sort of nature um, comparatives, you know, like the sea to the shore, I'm bound, like the sunlight, you know, I, I don't remember exact words, but so, but she talks about I'm bound to you, like all these things in nature are naturally connected together. But the first draft of the song used kind of a slavery metaphor, you know, I'm chained, I'm bound to you, you know, you're pa- and so there was, the reason I bring this up is something she wrote about a lot to Langston Hughes was it was hard to be a woman. Um, she and she was asked once, you know, have you felt, you know, what were the what are the restrictions you felt for, you know, being African American? And she said, that's not my that's not what holds me back. It's it's being a woman is the hardest barrier to overcome. And so I think that you see that in in her serious songs, um, there are ones that that deal with you know, being a woman, you know, and and that sort of thing.
3: I too sing America I am the darker sister They send me to eat in the kitchen
2: things about going through the collection were all the stories that it told um i, I really only worked on uh talking about her relationship with langston hughes but there's so many stories and so many connections she had to so many african-american performers and composers everything from like nina simone to you know um robeson i mean it, it's kind of amazing um and so I guess what I'm most excited about when it comes to Margaret Bonds was her deep appreciation for um, and love of literature and how that sort of played a role in her music.
0: Was there a a song that, or a composition that you were? particularly struck by of Margaret Vaughan.
2: Um, I've got to say it was uh, When Simon Bore the Cross uh, because it, it had been believed that the first four movements were lost, were gone uh, because, you know, manuscripts had gone everywhere. And so when we were going through the boxes and I realized here is a notebook that's got the first four, it's got the whole thing that was incredibly exciting um and a a colleague of mine at georgetown university um frederick binkholder has just published uh, a complete edition of it and georgetown did the premiere so it it is out there for anyone any choral group that wants to perform it it's published now so spread the word (laughs) So the, this ex, this exhibit went up in 2016 and the wow. university made a permanent digital exhibit so it is there wow. forever The <laughs> um, mm-hmm. so people can go to Georgetown University if you probably you guys can probably give them the link to it but if you know it's the, the exhibit is a musical friendship Margaret Bonds and Langston Hughes um, and what's great about it as well is all of the images if you click on them you can get huge, JPEGs of them. So you can really look at the manuscripts up close and in some of the letters. It's pretty exciting.
0: Tuned into WYXR ninety one point seven, and this is Sonosphere. Thanks for tuning in today, and I hope you've enjoyed our talk with Anna Chalenza on African American composer and pianist and activist Margaret Bonds. Right now, you are hearing her spiritual suite uh, played by Samantha Eggy. So we're listening now to Margaret Bond's spiritual suite. And we will uh, leave you with that suite, uh, starting off here with the Valley of Bones. Sprinkled in over the next several Sonosphere shows, we will feature women, opera singers, blues singers, and more. So stay tuned, Mondays from 4 to 5 p.m. on WYXR.
1: Raised by Sound.